0: The preceding lecture concluded with a consideration of the safety issue of cloning based on animal experimentation. This lecture will take up the remaining questions, the concurrence of the procedure with norms governing experimentation on human subjects, and the potential harms and injustices to prospective offspring, to women, to families, to society, And finally, a consideration of the violation of religious principles. The issue of the concordance of the procedure with ethical norms for governing human experimentation is not unproblematic. Two international codes, the Nuremberg Code and the Declaration of Helsinki, as well as the American codes, the Belmont Report, and the Code of Federal Regulation are pertinent to the issue of cloning to produce children. Each of these codes centers on the value of human dignity and the limitation of research, and all prohibit experimentation that is dangerous to human beings. The Nuremberg Code requires in Article 1, the informed consent of the research subject. In Article 2, it requires that the experiment provide a concrete good for society unavailable by any other means. In Article 3, that animal research precede research on human subjects. And in Articles 4, 5, 6, and 7, that the subject be protected from harm. The Declaration of Helsinki, which advances on Nuremberg by making a distinction between research directed to medical care of patients and medical research simply for the advancement of knowledge, has many of the same requirements of the Nuremberg Code. That is, that the subject be informed and that the benefits clearly outweigh the risks. Important advances enumerated in the Helsinki Declaration are the following. In medical research on subjects, considerations related to the well-being of the subject should take precedence over the interest of science and of society. Special provisions are to be made for those who cannot give consent, and in cases where consent cannot be directly attained, that the research benefit be specific to the research subject population. The Belmont Report continues many of the same protections and distinguishes between ethical principles that guide research into medical care and ethical principles that guide experimental research. The report lists as guiding principles the principles of respect for persons, beneficence, and justice. The constellation of these principles requires respect for autonomy and the rights of persons and special protection for persons with diminished capacity that the scientific research be beneficial in a concrete and meaningful way either to the individuals involved in the research or to others and that the harms and benefits be distributed justly. And finally, that the research subjects be selected fairly. The most recent regulations governing research in the United States are found in the Code of Federal Regulations. These regulations hold that research involving those who are incompetent requires assent of the participant, as well as the consent of the person who has legal authority over the participant. In summary, all four codes have consent provisions, protection from harm requirements, All four require some benefit calculation, and all four have directions for the selection of subjects. The Belmont Report appears to have the broadest requirement for subject selectivity and for benefit. That is, benefit is not limited to the individual subject or to any particularity about the subject research group, but is directed to society as a whole. In the application of the central requirements of these codes to cloning to produce children, there is concern for the informed consent of the adult participants in the process, but the assent provision, which would be impossible to get, is simply ignored. There is little concern expressed for the new human being who is to be generated. This disregard has its source in the myopia generated by the contemporary lack, of legal status for the unborn but conceived human being. At a minimum, best interest standards would be required to be invoked. It is evident that the strict application of the restrictions of these codes would prohibit cloning to produce children and cloning for biomedical research. Let us now turn to harms to the prospective clone. The potential harm to prospective human offspring are physical as well as psychological and social. The potential physical harms to cloned children, extrapolating from the real harms experienced by cloned animals, include a greater than normal risk of dying before birth, fatal abnormalities that cause death shortly after birth or after a relatively short lifespan, and non-fatal abnormalities, such as increased birth size, liver and brain defects lung, and kidney, and cardiovascular problems. Some short-term consequences observed in cloned animals include failure of the immune system, premature aging, and sudden death. Long-term consequences in cloned animals are simply unavailable. So no hypothesis about long-term effects of cloning to produce children are possible. Among the possible psychological and social concerns, for a cloned child are the following. The cloned individual would inherit a genetic identity already lived, in the case that the source of the somatic cell is someone who has died, or would inherit a genetic identity that is being lived concurrently by another, as in the case that the somatic cell is a contemporaneous living person as its source, or would inherit a particular genetic identity chosen by someone else in the case that designer genes were selected or genes were manipulated. The first might cause a problem of expectations. For example, if the intention of the cloning were to produce a virtual violinist or an exceptionally gifted athlete or a brilliant scientist or a raving beauty, the offspring might experience unbearable pressure to live up to those expectations or might suffer overwhelming guilt if other interest, self-chosen interest, became more directing of one's life. The second might cause a problem of familial relationships. If one parent is the source of the somatic cell, then the offspring has genetic linkage to only one parent. Furthermore, the relationship to the human being who is the source of the cell becomes complicated. That is, is the relationship that of twin sibling or that of parent child? The third possibility, if the somatic cell is taken from someone outside the biological family, the clone child would not have biological ties to the rearing family. While this might be considered similar to adoption, there are two concerns here. Adoption is, in a sense, a rescue act. And the clone, in this instance, represents a deliberate choice to bring a human being into existence in a particular set of circumstances. And furthermore, adoption in itself has some obstacles to be overcome by the lack of biological relationship. A fourth possibility suffers the risk of clone animals human being being treated like any other consumer goods or any other object of a parent's aspirations. Leon Cass cautions that parental control is a double-edged sword which may be the source of psychological and physical harms for the child whose genetic identity is selected in advance. Children have an identity independent of parents' desires and children ought to be understood as entitled to lives that are independent of their parents. There are potential harms and injustices to women latent in the process of cloning to produce children. The DNA of the somatic cell must be fused into an oocyte, a human egg cell, and there must be a womb to carry the newly conceived human being to term. All present cloning techniques require a large number of oocytes. Recall that for the production of the sheep dolly, this required 277 sheep eggs. If a woman, on an average, produces 12 to 13 mature eggs each year in her fertile years, it would take at least 20 years to produce eggs sufficient to produce one live birth, if extrapolation from the Dolly scenario were possible, and if cloning to produce children were no more complicated than the cloning of Dolly. Of course, science has not the time to wait 20 years, and of course, science has the technology to speed things up. Hormonal treatments are available to induce superovulation in women, and surgical procedures are available to retrieve the eggs that are produced by superovulation. Hormonal treatments to induce superovulation have both physical and emotional risks for women, and no surgical procedure is without anxiety. The exaggerated emotional high and emotional lows subsequent to hormonal treatment are well enough documented to have earned a name of their own, the Bambi-Hitler syndrome. And since only women have wombs, there must be some women who are willing and able to carry the newly generated human being to term. This then is a kind of surrogacy. Because animal cloning results in dangers to the clone-bearing mother that are not insignificant, human cloning to produce children cannot be permitted to go forward at this time and at this level of experimental competence. Animal cloning is accompanied by increased morbidity and mortality for the mother. The NAS report lists the following. Increased maternal mortality can result from late gestational loss, increased size of the fetus, abnormal placentation, pregnancy toxemia, most notably hydroallantois, and hydranimos excessive accumulation of fluid in the uterus often associated with fetal abnormality and maternal distress. There is considerable debate among some feminists as to whether these new procedures present new economic opportunities for women and hence a unique good for women, or if the new procedures present a whole new set of burdens rooted in biological structures unique to women. If financial incentives were offered for egg production or for womb use, it might be the case that only women in difficult economic circumstances might offer their bodily capacities for such projects. There are at least two risks here. The first risk is that the acceptance of this role has the potential to reduce poor women to objects for production. The second risk is that if women are chosen from a position of economic necessity rather than from personal flourishing or gift giving, then the consent to the procedure, whether egg donation or womb use, loses its voluntary character. The real possibility of both of these risks is potential assault on the dignity of women. The potential harms and injustices to families and to societies at large are for the most part not physical harms, but possible structural harms and injustices that might arise from a change in the order in the family and in society. The potential harms to family include those of relationship and those of inheritance, genetic as well as economic. Those of relationship have to do with real dignity and human equality. The report of the President's Council has this to say. A begotten child comes into the world just as its parents once did and is therefore their equal in dignity and humanity. Our emergence from the union of two individuals themselves conceived and generated as we were locates us immediately in a network of relation and natural affection. Among the potential harms to society are the traversing of a natural boundary in the transition from sexual to asexual reproduction, and the probable industrialization of human production with the likely attendant practices of the destruction of those determined unfit or imperfect. The Catholic tradition, which is central to the treatment of medical issues in these lectures, holds as normative that children are a good, a gift of God conceived in love, born in faith of the goodness of human life and in the hope of everlasting life. It holds, first, that children are to be born of marriage. Second, that children are to be born of the marriage act, marital intercourse which unites husband and wife in an act that is open to procreation. And three, that while all human beings have intrinsic dignity that commands respect, vulnerable human beings The least of these are to be the recipients of special care. Most instances of cloning to produce children would be violative of the first. And all of the instances of cloning to produce children would be violative of the second. And cloning to produce children, if it were accepted as an ordinary practice, would result in the direct destruction of those deemed less than perfect would violate the third. So the Catholic tradition has principles in place that exercise a limit on the practice of cloning to produce children. To these principles are to be added the potential physical and psychological and sociological harms to children, to women, to families, and to society. An important question arises here. If the physical risk to the mother and the child are shown to be statistically acceptable, that is, the mortality rate of each equals the mortality rate of normal conception and childbearing. And if the morbidity rate equals that associated with normal conception and childbearing, would cloning then become morally acceptable? Could the objections to potential harms if the physical harms were overcome to the clone human being, to the family, and to society be overcome? Will those holding a particular religious tradition, such as those committed to Catholicism, which prescribes cloning, become an alien community in a culture that reduces progress to scientific progress, that allows and values human beings designed to meet certain standards of acceptability, and that permits the early destruction of cloned human beings who do not meet such standards? If the tradition is the repository of truth, its alien status is to be endured, a sign of commitment and the hope of the transformation of the culture. The tradition, however, must be mindful of its obligations to continue to study its tradition so that its understanding of the truth is a truthful understanding. In this, the tradition accepts the duty set forth by Pope Leo XIII in his encyclical Aeterna Patris. Vadera novus algerae et perfiturae, to add to and to perfect the old by the new. The second set of moral issues in cloning centers on the question of cloning for biomedical research. Here the issue is the production of human embryos for purposes other than the well-being of the human embryo itself. The embryo is produced by means of somatic cell nuclear transfer and cultured to an appropriate stage after which either the study of its development commences or the stem cells from its intercell mass are harvested for use in treatment in either regenerative medicine or in transplantation medicine. The use of stem cells has captured the imagination of scientists and the sympathies of the general public. The reason for this lies in the possible use of stem cells for increase in scientific knowledge and for the possible use of stem cells in regenerative medicine. It is important to know that at this present stage of scientific and medical knowledge, the possible use of stem cells is largely promise. Now those ends, knowledge and therapy, are good ends. So what's the fuss? What lies at the heart of the fuss is the use of embryonic stem cells. So first, let's describe stem cells, examine the many possible goods that stem cells offer, list the sources of stem cells, and then examine the ethical issues in stem cell use. Stem cells are marvelously versatile. They are pluripotent in character. They are unspecialized cells that have the capacity to give rise to many different types of cells. All 200 of the different types of cells, nerve cells, muscle cells, cardiac cells, in the human body. Stem cells are found in the bloodstream, in bone marrow, in the umbilical cord, in fetal tissue, in certain types of tumors, and in the inner cell mass of the human embryo. Stem cells are considered potentially immortal. That is, they have indefinitely continuous divisional ability without the loss of genetic structure. The potential limitless diversity and the potential immortality of stem cells makes them very valuable indeed. It has been suggested that stem cells might be able to generate new nerve cells, and hence might be the source of a cure for spinal cord injuries, or that stem cells might replace impaired or disrupted or damaged brain cells, and hence are a potential cure for Parkinson's disease or for Alzheimer's disease. It has been suggested that stem cells as a sort of heart tissue or other solid organ tissue might make it possible to bypass the problem of organ rejection common in transplantation procedures. And it has been suggested that the study of early human development by using embryos generated in somatic stem cell transfer might be the key to preventing developmental damage for future desired children. Now, the use of stem cells found in the bloodstream, in bone marrow, and on the umbilical cord, and in fetal tissue, and in certain types of tumor is unproblematic. A straightforward application of the principle of totality suffices. The part may be used for the good of the whole. The problem with the use of stem cells taken from the inner cell mass of the embryo prior to implantation is that the embryo is destroyed in the harvesting of the stem cells. If the embryo is a living developing human being then its life may not be destroyed to heal illnesses of other presently living, developing human beings and its life may not be destroyed to serve the good of developmental correction for future living, developing human beings. The rules governing the principle of totality in an organism that is a moral community apply here. Most significant here is that only the activities and not the life of the part, not the life of the embryo may be used for the good of the whole, the person who would receive the stem cells or the society that would benefit from the research. The status then of the pre-implantation embryo, the embryo produced by the procedure of somatic cell nuclear transfer is a critical issue. In contemporary medical ethics, there are three different claims about the status of the pre-implantation embryo. These significant claims are the following. The first is, the pre-implantation embryo is just a set of cells, a bit of tissue, organized now in a particular manner. It is permissible to organize it in another manner so long as that reorganization serves a human good. The second is, the pre-implantation embryo is the earliest stage of development of human life. It deserves profound respect, but not the respect owed to more developed forms of human life. The third is the pre-implantation embryo is the earliest stage of development of human life and deserves the same respect accorded to other living, developing human beings. The answer to this question of the status of the pre-implantation embryo has been answered with much care in the lectures on abortion. The conclusion presented there is, a human being is an opened, unfinished being who begins existence at syngamy and becomes what it is by developing its potentialities. The becoming, which is described in various stages, is a time-conditioned unfolding of the possibilities given at syngamy. It is then a member of the moral community. It's life may not be directly taken to serve some other good of the human community. Now, a brief response to the other two particular opposing perspectives is appropriate. Those who defend the first sometimes make the claim that the embryo produced by somatic cell nuclear transfer is just tissue. It is an artifact, and it is different from the embryo produced by sexual reproduction. Now while it is true that the method of its coming into existence is different, it is still an embryo. And as an embryo, it is different from other types of tissue which remain throughout the life of the tissue, simply that type of tissue. The embryo is a living, developing human being who by its active natural potentiality is destined to become a more fully developed human being. Those who defend the second position seem on the face of it to have the least defensible position. They recognize the embryo as an early stage in the life of an individual and require profound respect for that life, but allow the direct destruction of that life to serve the health and well-being of some other human being. There is something incompatible with the claim to proffer profound respect in an act which countenances the killing of the object of the profound respect. In summary, both cloning to produce children and cloning for biomedical research, even if they were technically possible, are morally impermissible. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.